You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So welcome to the February Journal Club Simulcast episode. I'm Victoria Brazel and I am joined again by Ben Simon. How are you, Ben? Mate, I'm good and it's been lovely to start the new year uh, with a strong start, I would say, particularly from your new fellows. So thank you to them. Yes, enthusiastic participants. But I think, to your credit, uh, enthusiasm based on a topic that gets us really interested, and that is simulation fidelity or something else that we should be calling it. Yeah, absolutely. So the paper this month uh, was entitled Reconsidering Fidelity in Simulation-Based Training in Academic Medicine in 2014, uh, and it was written by Stanley Hamstra et al., and uh, look, this month we were definitely all about Fidelity Vic, or as you accurately point out, we were all about asking what the heck Fidelity actually means and why embedding it within simulation nomenclature causes us some recurrent problems in the way that we think about sim. So as Eve Perry pointed out this month, the origins of this article are actually really interesting in and of themselves and that the authors wrote this perspective in response to their attempts to code Fidelity within a systematic review and meta-analysis. And when they attempted this, they were hit with an incredibly challenging issue when it came to the data. What fidelity was and what it meant to different people varied to such an intensity that it became impossible to code. And the authors note that while fidelity is superficially understood in simulation culture as the degree to which a simulator looks, feels and acts like a human patient, that actually what fidelity means varies to the point that it can become pretty meaningless. And they give the the great example of a surgeon viewing a cadaver as higher fidelity than an expensive mannequin. Whereas in contrast in the same situation, a tech designer might view the mannequin as much higher fidelity than the cadaver, unless they're going like full weekend at Bernie's. So they point out that we're also very binary in our language about fidelity. And it's either high or low, and there's kind of nothing in between. And that leads it to essentially being yeah, an unhelpful term in a lot of ways when we try and approach this from an academic mindset. So after conducting their systematic review and having some very deep thoughts, the authors make three primary recommendations. And the first is one, change our language, stop saying fidelity and start using more sophisticated terms. And they suggest functional task alignment and physical resemblance. Now, physical resemblance kind of makes sense. Functional task alignment is defined as aligning a simulator's functional properties with the functional requirements of the task. That's a really useful concept. The second recommendation they make is that we should shift our focus away from physical resemblance to instead focus on matching simulation technique to the learning needs of the sim. And there's a wonderful quote from Roger Kneebone in the paper as saying, all too often it is the surface realism of the simulation that occupies the ingenuity of those who develop it. And that's certainly, it's a lovely little quote and it certainly hits home and I think it will for a lot of our listeners as well. We've obviously been doing this for too long, Ben, because I wrote down exactly the same quote when I was doing my notes for this. (laughs) It is so nice. It just, yeah, it sums things up very well and very poetically. But I think this is a really important concept to lean into in that every time I show someone this article, it really reminds me a little bit of the same way beginner debriefers uh, feel when they read debriefing with good judgment for the first time. 
there's this aha moment of understanding, but also a, a kind of an oh no moment of uh, this heart sink of oh god, what have I been doing for the last five years, and where is my focus mean, <laughs> and I've been doing this all wrong. And it's look in many ways a very simple concept, but like many great ideas, it's easy to think of once somebody else has pointed it out in a well structured way. And I think this paper is so foundational that for me, it's a really important early article for simulation trainings. The third recommendation they make uh, is the philosophical one of making sure that we focus on methods to enhance educational effectiveness using principles about transfer of learning, learner engagement, and suspension of disbelief. Uh, So big fan of this paper. And I would say, well, it's from uh, 2014, so a little while ago now. Um, Still is read as fairly new information to a lot of my colleagues when I share it. How about you, Vic? Yeah, absolutely. I think it did make a big impact when it came out. And I think just to give a little bit of background that you, uh, just to build on what you said, this is a group of heavy hitters in the simulation research and theory uh, group. And just if people are interested in the systematic review they were doing, it is also worth a read. And that's uh, Cook et al. Comparative Effectiveness of Instructional Design Features in Simulation-Based Education, a Systematic Review in Medical Teacher in 2013. And that is also worth a look because they really did go deep and say what makes a difference to learning. Uh, and I agree this was really an important contribution <laughs> for something that they didn't manage to actually put in the formal uh, systematic review. I'm with you. I like their recommendations. Uh, I think there's obviously more to it and in any publication. You've got to think how deep do you go. But for me, the functional task alignment, I'm surprised, or maybe it has and I just haven't read it, but it hasn't really been explored a lot more because I think there's a difference between, say, diagnostic functional tasks, uh, management or therapeutic functional tasks, and even exploratory functional tasks. And so that is what's the functional task alignment of walking around a planned vaccination clinic in your simulation or planning a new operating theatre. And I certainly know that it's extremely hard to get functional task alignment for a diagnostic challenge, particularly if you're using a mannequin. So I think this is a great concept and um, I think there's more to go and maybe I just haven't kept up up with it, but I'm hoping others are looking more into this. Yeah, agreed. So when it comes to our others in the Journal Club group, uh, thank you so much to all the correspondents this month. Um, The themes seem to be very much one that there was strong agreement uh, about the principles of this paper, but also some concern in terms of branding, really, that functional task alignment isn't super catchy, uh, can feel a little bit clunky, and isn't a term that immediately, you don't immediately get it necessarily as a principle. Um, Secondly, there was some reflection on how our terminology in general can impact the way we well, the things that we emphasize in our sims and the values that we have as an organization or as a healthcare culture. And thirdly, there was just a lot of appreciation for the paper itself. So look, everyone seemed on board with this paper as a reminder of these really important first principles. It's not how things look that matters, it's whether the sim matches the needs of the learning that you set out to do. And I think even just from that philosophical standpoint, it's such a great grounding and foundational paper you're listening to simulcast so susan ella and Yuvik noted however that functional task alignment as a term hasn't exactly gone viral it's a bit of a mouthful 
Uh, Fidelity rolls nicely off the tongue. And there are multiple colleagues in the chat who still found it useful to break down the concepts of realism into emotional and cognitive or physical, which included myself, but nobody could come up with a better uh, a term that both rolled off the tongue and, and really captured what, we're, what functional task alignment is going for. I personally liked functional task alignment because I just think we all sound super smart when we use it as a term. There was reflection uh, on how our terminology, though, impacts what we do, and I think this is a really important point in that uh, by valuing fidelity and centering it in our language, we've therefore sort of created this relentless pursuit of replicating reality that kind of leads us to creating a rod for our own back. So Sonia Sani, for example, noted that uh, she said, I would even extend this to say that by attempting to make a simulation as realistic as possible, but of course falling short, we are alienating certain participants who feel that they cannot engage as it's not real life. So it is so much work to try and make it look real that people start expecting it to look real, that we give them permission to judge the sim by how well it replicates reality rather than bringing their focus back on the learning. Uh, Dan and Eve agreed that focusing on physical realism has really likely led us towards using mannequins more than simulated patients in some ways. And I'd certainly agree that when it comes to negotiating the fiction contract in a pre-brief, we often remain kind of apologetic that things aren't exactly like they would be in real life, rather than just freeing ourselves from the pretense that this is somehow a documentary and instead focusing on what the learning benefits of the session will be. You looked like you had something to say about yeah, well, I think this tension happens even in us trying to make the length and complexity of a scenario realistic. And so sometimes we feel the need to get to sort of an end of a patient journey, whereas maybe we don't. Maybe it's actually much more realistic and aligned with those learning goals to say, we're just going to do this bit. And I think if we bring the learners on that journey and make it clear where the boundaries are, um, probably we can get more out of it without having to put in some of the effort that we do. Yeah, and I think a great example of that is, uh, for example, the huddle sim that I've heard you do in many ways. Like it's a nice discrete period, but also, you know, it is not a complete patient journey, uh, but it allows you to it's focus on the value add of, of that particular experience. Yeah, there's not even a patient in the middle of it. We're just talking mm. it through conceptually. And so I agreed. It's got a very well-bounded, well-recognised um, scope, and I think that's the key is that uh, not to make that muddy. Yeah, agreed. And then lastly, Eve pointed out what a wonderful and unexpected blessing this paper was, and I'm just going to quote her in full here because I can't do Eve better than Eve does Eve. Uh, she says that clearly the authors set out with a different goal than what they presented and the envisioned systematic review and meta-analysis of simulation fidelity never came to fruition. Instead, what we are left with is an elegant reflection, a piece that we get to chew on and debate with our friends. And personally, I think this is far more valuable. A good example of when a narrative review, which is technically lower in the hierarchy of evidence, can be superior we could use more of this candor and warmth in the presentation of scientific results, and I'll try to bring some in mind the next time I write. Which I thought was just such a lovely acknowledgement of, uh, and, and Eve always does that so well, of emphasising that, you know, the true purpose of academic research being to enlighten our conversations and improve our care, not necessarily to be a certain rung uh, as defined by 
uh, you know, a established hierarchy. It's about joining or starting or uh, provoking a conversation, which I think this paper did. Yeah, absolutely. And continues to do. Hmm. All right. Well, uh, I've got a good example of the conundrum in our next paper. Should I go on to that one, Ben? Yeah, let's do it. It's a paper by Wilson et al. that's titled, Is That Realistic? The Development of a Realism Assessment Questionnaire and its Application in Appraising Three Simulators for a Gynecology Procedure. And this is back in 2018 from Advances in Simulation. And again, as I said, I picked it out because uh, it's a good example of what we've been talking about. So the background to this is, as we've just been saying, there is no standardised approach to determining realism. And so these authors set out to design, uh, as they describe it, a generic simulator realism questionnaire with the idea that then we could evaluate simulators in the future using this questionnaire and decide whether or not to use them. And they did that in the context of intrauterine contraceptive device insertion. So, and I think this is important, they took a procedural technical task uh, as the way they were exploring this topic. And interestingly, they... (laughs) used some slightly different terminology again. They talked about looking real, a structural fidelity, and acting real, which is a functional fidelity. So, again, you know, pick your terminology poison. And one of the things that was sort of struck me as well is they were really, in particularly in a procedural task like this, talking about simulator fidelity, whereas often we are talking about simulation activity fidelity. And I think the two really are important. To be honest, the hamster paper didn't make that distinction well either because I think that brings in a whole range of issues related to the team composition and who you're doing it with versus this single-person procedural task simulation. So insert here, more complexity. But it seems like a pretty good premise and a great place to start. What did you think, Ben? I did, and I think, um, you know, this is always being very non-surgical. This is already always in simulation an area of weakness of mine but um i thought it is a it is exactly the right kind of procedure to talk about this clinical problem and i really like the way they yeah yes and they make the point that it's something that's done by a range of different uh practitioners uh in different settings so the what did they do they designed the questionnaire and they had two kinds of questions which they described as global which means things you could ask about any procedure-related simulator, and then procedure-specific questions, i.e. specific to IUD insertion. And just to give you some flavour of the sort of areas that they talked about were appearance, feel, response to instruments, accuracy, procedural steps, uh, setup. And um, so they asked them these questions in relation to these simulators and they used a seven-point like-it item for their questionnaire. And it's in the paper. I won't go through it in great detail. Importantly, uh, they asked how real are those things and then how important is that, which I think is kind of an interesting question. Uh, and then they tested these three simulators. And there's a nice picture of those simulators in there, probably more than I ever really needed to know about IUD insertion as an emergency physician, but interestingly. And I think it's if you look at the pictures, they've got a sort of two-dimensional model and then something called a desktop uterus model and then a pelvic model. And uh, you can sort of tell that these probably increase in price, uh, I imagine, as you go up the level and increase in their specificity for this uh, task. So they tested these three simulators uh, asking a variety of practitioners 
about what they thought. And they actually found a pretty strong correlation between the global questions and the procedure-specific questions. They found the simulators varied in realism, which doesn't surprise me, but I guess goes to the uh, utility of their questionnaire. Uh, and they actually did find a perceived difference in the effect on training and assessment of these simulators, meaning that you're much better off training in the ones that they found overall were more realistic. So it's not a surprise, but it seems like it's building evidence for uh, the usefulness, and I'm avoiding the word validity of their questionnaire. Yeah. What do you think, Ben? Yeah, I agree. I think it's a lovely paper and a lovely example of that extension of that research into functional task alignment or what what is and isn't important to the transfer of learning um and i was a little surprised at how i think much like um just stokes Parrish's work in that the learners clearly do still very strongly value uh elements of physical realism um whether or not we can see from a theoretical component that it actually assists with that transfer of learning yeah. That said, I think it's not surprising with a procedural task, and I guess I can think of one closer to my practice um, in intubation, and I would happily say intubating most plastic airway heads or mannequins is not that similar in physical realism uh, to a real human being. So I do understand why and how people have that. Yeah, absolutely. I guess... I guess the question at the end of reading this is, do we need to have a standardised approach for assessing simulator realism? Uh, possibly we do in terms of particularly this sort of technical procedural tasks. Uh, can it be standardised and global as opposed to procedure specific? I'm not sure, but uh, it's certainly going to be a wealth of publishing if we have to find a questionnaire for every single procedure we do. Uh, and then is this the right one? Uh, is this the right questionnaire? It certainly seems to have uh, got some traction in terms of its usefulness in this particular context. Agreed. Mm, hmm. So I think good work and we hope more to come. And, of course, shout out here. These are many of our friends who work up at the Mater, including Sarah Jansen's great friend of Simulcast. You're listening to Simulcast. All right, and then I've got two more papers, Ben, that are a little bit left field, both of them. The title of this uh, paper is called Delivering Simulation Activities Safely. What if we hurt ourselves? Question mark. And this is by Anjum Nawid and a group of Australian authors from Simulation in Healthcare, Concepts and Commentary uh, right now, February 2021. And it's worth a read in detail, uh, but I'm going to sort of summarise the points here because it really does focus on the concept of psychological safety. And we've talked about that for learners, sure, and that's much written about, um, but also it's probably for faculty. And in this paper, they describe a workshop based on exploring psychological safety that essentially went wrong. And so I think really this paper is a reminder about unintended consequences of the things we do in SIM and in faculty development, uh, and in particular, maybe extending some of our planning to explicitly recognise the role of psychological safety for faculty. And Ben, as I read this, I was just thinking back to when SIM first became a thing. And I can imagine many of those listening 
perhaps like me, found themselves giving a grand round presentation with a mannequin uh, in the audience and then having some dramatic moment where the mannequin falls down and has a cardiac arrest and people in the audience come in and help resuscitate. And we all thought that was great fun. Uh, but when we think about it, it didn't even occur to me that there would be any of these more nuanced potential downsides that we were, in fact, tricking the people in the audience. We hadn't established any safe container or boundaries around it. And it strikes me that this is a much more sophisticated version of uh, some of those early efforts that I remember myself doing. You ever done any of those, Ben? No, never. No, that's just <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for the validation. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's definitely. Uh, the mannequin in the auditorium is still being pitched at my hospital, so don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm showing this vulnerability because it's in uh, solidarity with the authors of this paper who didn't have to write this, but I'm so pleased they did. And in brief, this is a case report of a simulation adverse event. That's how they say it. And this was an interdisciplinary, and by that I mean uh, between health uh, and other endeavours, other disciplines that use simulation like the building industry and others. It was quite well planned. It was a faculty development workshop exploring psychological safety. And um, they were had people in the workshop planning a simulation about a building evacuation and then they actually had a simulated building evacuation and started to evacuate when then a simulated medical emergency times two happened i.e someone collapsed uh, and someone else had an anxiety attack about the collapse so this was all planned in advance uh, the faculty knew that was going to happen and they had done a bit of work on pre-briefing participants uh, who it turned out were actually quite excited to sort of see what was in store for them. And they actually had these safe words, stop, 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 that they were going to uh, use should they need to end the simulation. Now, to cut a long story short, they then had a debrief and there were some very strong feelings and the word chaotic was used as to how it went because people got very distressed about what was real and what wasn't and how they felt like they'd been tricked and they had it felt like they'd contracted for some of the things that happened but not all of them. So who knows what actually went on in the room, although they spent a bit of time describing some of that. But to their credit, they were so, I think, um, concerned about the outcomes, both for the faculty and the participant, that they did an adverse event analysis and recorded reflections from both participants and facilitators. And this is a level of sophistication that I've never really seen happen. Ben, what about you? No, it was uh, a big effort and uh, one that I admire in terms of this, as you said, the sophistication of their approach. Mm. And so the paper goes on to provide some quotes from both of those groups, and I think it just sort of illustrates the depth of impact that something like this can have and how people do establish a notion of fairness when they enter into this fiction contract and, and some deception, and I think that's what it really raised for me. Uh Importantly, they used this word epizuxis, which apparently is an immediate repetition of words for emphasis. So stop, stop, stop is an example of epizuxis. So just in case you don't get the satisfaction you need with functional task alignment, Ben, throw that one in. <laughs> uh, one of the other things it brought up was that maybe there was also different cultural norms for psychological safety across different industries, and that might be relevant as well. So look, uh, and then the last thing that they did here that probably is quite 
useful in terms of trying to get the concepts out of it is they take uh, what is their figure one, which is looking at what are the elements of a safe container for participants adapted from Jenny Rudolph's work uh, in terms of fiction contract, managing logistics and expectations and showing respect. And then they turn the daisy into a chrysanthemum and they add a lot more petals to the diagram uh, and extend it to also include the instructor's acceptance of fiction contract and being shown respect as well as some of the other contextual elements about physical environments, uh, cultural influences and uh, psychological risk. So it turns into a kind of complex diagram, which I don't know if I'd be using in the moment, but I think when you sit, sit back and look at it, it makes you realise gee, unintended consequences are probably more remarkable that they don't happen more often. Yeah, agreed. And I I, um, I found the complexity of the diagram a little overwhelming, but I think at the heart that the content of the diagram is less important than this concept that the set, you know, a safe container is a shared space created between learner and facilitator with impact on both. Mm. So what it made me think, Ben, um, is that I know a lot of people have a good practice of debriefing the debrief, and I think I do that some of the time, but not 100% of the time with our teams. But I don't know that I've ever really had a critical incident analysis of a simulation activity, and yet there's probably been cause to. Uh, what are your thoughts about how we should approach this? Well, I actually have mixed feelings in that um, I really admired the paper, um, but I was a little... Um, I was just watching my own emotion when reading it and I was a little surprised at the intensity of the language used, particularly around sort of psychological trauma and, and terms such as second victim and restorative justice apology processes. Um, and it found, sounds like this was a really impactful event for the people who were involved and particularly the educators. Um, I, I think it, absolutely is good to think about how do we better process and analyze negative events that happen in simulation this seems like a pretty high intensity response and i'm not sure it's a response that i think i could pragmatically and practically do uh on a day mm. level but i think the underlying principles remain very useful mm. Yeah, I mean, we start to look to parallels to the clinical world. Should we have an adverse event register? We've worked on a simulation safety procedure. And so I think we've sort of danced around it, but I don't think we're as sophisticated as we are in the clinical world where we've had to confront, I guess, a lot more nuanced and um, and obvious uh, adverse events. But probably there is a need there. This, I mean, to me, this this paper was really... It reminded me very much. We've we've discussed sort of deception in a couple of general class podcasts now, but it, it reminds me that it seems to be people are very happy pretending something's real. Uh, people are very happy to sort of engage in that process of playing pretend, and they actually seem to be okay with being tricked. The, the real thing that really seems to trigger people is when you make an agreement to play pretend and then you blur the line between what is real and what is not real. And it's just disorientating and upsetting because you don't know where the where the boundaries are. Um, and and it seems to be the thing that's sort of the thing that struck out for me that's struck in our previous conversations as well is, you know, blurring that line is a fairly perilous action with not 
necessarily a whole bunch of productive educational outcomes. Mm. All right. Well, an interesting, thought-provoking concepts and commentary. You're listening to Simulcast. Now, the last paper. The title of this paper is Development and Considerations for Virtual Reality Simulations for Resuscitation Training and Stress Inoculation. And this is by Chang et al. Uh, and this is from Simulation in Healthcare, December 2020. And this is a group working from the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. And uh, this is very interesting, but I do have to tell you the background because last Monday I found myself at a place called Zero Latency shooting zombies wearing a virtual reality headset. And obviously this was all in the service of research relating to simulation training. Quite honestly, the tactical research unit at Bond are a group who do simulation for the military and for uh, law enforcement services. And they took uh, myself and Belinda Lowe to a place called Zero Latency, which is just a game place where you go and you get kitted up with the headphones and the uh, glasses and you do walk around this very large warehouse space that you perceive as a dystopian environment where you need to shoot zombies. Uh, it was pretty interesting, but I was forced to think this is a long way ahead of where I've seen most of the healthcare virtual reality that I've experienced, and I've tried out quite a lot of it at conferences in particular. Uh, but it made me sort of think, is VR going to be there yet and for what? So I picked out this paper, as I said, and to give a bit of background as to why they did this, as people know, resuscitation team leadership is stressful. There's a theory that doing stress inoculation can improve our performance under stress. That means by exposing people over and over to stressful events, we can get better at them. Uh, and the postulation is that simulation can help with this inoculation process, but it's pretty resource intensive to be developing a large number of um, team-based scenarios for resuscitation just to give the team leaders this experience. And so maybe VR might be an alternative. Uh, do you do any st stress inoculation training um, sims, Ben? Only with zombies, but... Um... I, well, I'm interested in stress inoculation in that um, there's so much <laughs> curriculum to cover all of the time that I can't say I've gotten to the point where I'm like, you know, where, where my value add is is to get my, my learners stressed. Uh, so I am curious. I know it was sort of a big hot topic a while ago, and I, I, have, I haven't seen necessarily, like I, th I think there is, it is an aspect of sim that can be beneficial, but I haven't seen it as part of an intentional design process a lot of the time. How about yourself? Mm. Uh, no, and well, we've been talking about it with these tactical research unit guys because one of the things is does it work? And I don't think we really know. I think there are some people who enjoy being really challenged in our specialty and they're the ones that I guess I've heard most about. I'm sure there are in other worlds as well. And then there's some who become overwhelmed by that. And I think in a team-based environment, it's very hard to say we're going to run stress inoculation today knowing that the four or five senior trainees and senior nurses are going to really enjoy it and then everybody else is going to be just terrified and overwhelmed. So I think it's a very tricky thing to do, which is why the idea of a single-player virtual reality game is attractive. All right, well, what did they actually do? Uh, this group say, well, look, there's evidence for inoculation using virtual reality for things like phobias and PTSD, which literature I was unaware of, but apparently it's there. 
and they think that these VR scenarios are pretty good for the team leader role because the audiovisual experience is good, but a lot of the haptics and the touch and feel aren't very good at this state of the technology, uh, unlike, say, the laparoscopic surgical simulators that we've got. So probably better for the team leader role than, say, the airway doctor. Uh, so these guys developed their scenarios in collaboration with game developers using an Oculus Rift, and they chose two scenarios, infant seizure and anaphylaxis. And so in each of those, the person doing the game is the team leader. They had the patient, but they also then had a nurse and respiratory therapist avatars. Uh, but they couldn't walk around and they couldn't say orders out loud and then have them done. They actually had to, like, click stuff in the game. So. I think they'd lose a little bit of some kind of functional task alignment there, Ben. And uh, anyway, they described the process of setting up the scenarios and had 20 senior doctors attending level and 15 trainees undertake these scenarios. And then the way they evaluated it was uh, were there performance differences between the novices and experts and were there physiologic stress changes during the virtual reality as measured by heart rate and salivary cortisol. It's a pretty intensive setting up this process, Ben, but seems like fun. It is. It sounded pretty good. And I do think, like, if you know, if, it's, if your learning objective or, or your simulation outcome or your intervention or whatever is, are we going to get people more stressed? This is, you know, VR, I agree. It's a nice, simple way of doing it that you can replicate, that you could potentially dial up the volume of um, for the right candidate. Yeah, and just for those who are really interested in scenario design, this does require the sort of branched chain if-then type design, which I think most of us have gone away from in our team-based scenarios just because it can get too complicated too quickly. But if you're writing things into software, unfortunately, you sort of have to have a bit more of a structure like that, at least from what I understand. I don't think you can just be the game master as in Ready Player One. So what did they actually find? Uh, they found that there was not much difference between novice and expert in their performance. There are a few things. The attendings tended to move faster probably through algorithms. So for the seizures, they started giving the second line agents earlier. For the anaphylaxis, they made the decision to go to a cracothyrotomy earlier. Uh, that's probably not that surprising. And they did find that the residents, the trainees, had higher heart rates and cortisol levels uh, than the attendings. So that seemed to indicate that maybe they had got more of a stressful response for those who were more junior. Uh, a couple of little interesting things. It seemed the faculty were very annoyed when they actually called out for the nurses to do something and then they didn't because the software didn't allow that. I thought that was quite an amusing thing. Uh, my summary of this is I actually think this is going to work. I think the quality just needs to get better. Uh, and I think these kind of single-player activities are where is the bang for buck for VR. I, it won't replace, I don't think, the so-called multiplayer sim where we get so much out of sitting around and talking with each other. But I think this will be very good for this kind of application where you think, right, I want to really get, set myself a challenge, see how I respond to it, and then maybe still have a debriefing process, but it's very focused on a single person. Uh, what do you think, Ben? Look, I'm, I'm still a cynic at this stage, but I agree. I think when you can get to the level of sophistication that you need for this to actually 
be a decent replication of the challenges we face, it would be amazing. Like I'd love to just plug in and do a bunch of different pediatric resuscitation sims and practice and actively rehearse in a way that you can't with a team-based simulation. Um, So I think it's definitely going to continue to get better and I hope we're still doing journal club in 20 years and can say we finally got there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was, as I said, I was heartened by the zero latency when the, when we had to jump onto the helicopter, you could feel the downdraft because they had a little fan above us apparently. And then when you're walking along the side of the building, it looks like there's, you know, 40 stories drop off right next to you. It's, very I, I, realistic. I played the same one in Kuala Lumpur, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah, because I had a helicopter and, yeah, all that, all that yeah. the zombies and stuff. And I almost fell over at one point. Like the internal balance and stuff was uh, – it, it's impressive. It must be hilarious watching everyone just walk around oh, if you don't remember. have the headset on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, it, yeah. and I was walking around there with, with – four or five trained killers soldiers yeah. and i thought real soldiers and i can imagine uh, belinda lowe would be a particularly kick-ass zombie killing warrior as well Ooh. what goes on in the sim ben what goes on in the sim that's right all right well we'll look forward to hearing more about vr i think we're going to keep talking about psychological safety and i also don't think uh simulator fidelity or functional task alignment is going to go away anytime soon but What about March? What are we going to talk about then? So this is a very self-indulgent month, Vic. Uh, But I really wanted to uh, focus on pediatrics and in particular this idea of incorporating um, healthcare consumers into simulation design. So we've talked about um, engaging healthcare consumers in different ways in Simulcast over the years, but uh, there are two papers we're going to look at Uh, that explore different options for using patient advocates and patients themselves in designing pediatrically focused sims. Uh, So the first article we'll look at is called Lessons Learnt from Piloting Pediatric Patient-Focused and Family-Focused Simulation Methodology in a Clerkship Objective Structured Clinical Experience uh, by Selen Sagalowski et al., uh, published in BMJ Stell. Uh, and then we're also going to look at one that uh, I was lead author on, which is Practical Reflections on a Collaboration with Healthcare Consumers on the Development of a Simulation, um, again published in BMJ Cell, because I think pediatrics is a great example of a place where you do need patients as part of your healthcare team, or you need patients' families. And so when I look at the work that you guys have done with Eve on cultural compression, it's a really great starting point to talk about well how do we do this now intentionally and how do we um onboard our staff earlier in understanding that parents of sick children are a structured and important part of our resuscitation teams and so looking looking at the papers more as a great examples of options um and hopefully there's some conversation about the principles next month Mm, I agree. If we get this right in sim, that bodes well for trying to get it right in the real world. Yeah. Mm. All right. Well, we'll look forward to it. Uh, Just for our simulcast listeners, don't forget if you want to read those papers and then more importantly for us, comment on them, go to www.simulationpodcast.com. 
if you're interested in the papers we've been talking about this month, we'll put the links for that in the notes regarding this episode. And uh, by the way, don't forget, if you want to rate us on iTunes, feel free to go along and do that just so that other people can find our great podcast. Well, it's been a pleasure, Ben. Thank you again. We'll look forward to seeing you in March. As always, uh, thanks for a good discussion and say hi to all your fellows for me. You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation.